Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Welcome to New Life. I'm Pastor Chris, the lead pastor for those of you who are new or watching online for the first time. We're so glad you're here with us today. We're in the middle of this series called Elephants, and as we've mentioned during the first three weeks of the series, elephants are sort of topics that are out there in the culture, but but the churches generally don't want to talk about them. And so we've so far heard Pastor Mark last week did an outstanding job addressing the elephant of suicide. And then the week before, Pastor Brad did an amazing job with the elephant of racism. And I kicked off the series talking about abortion. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about today after we pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and love. We thank you for your blessings in our life. We thank you that you have truth. And you have established it for our lives, for our, for our good. And I pray today that you would open our hearts, our minds, our spirits, that we can receive your truth and that we can live it out in love in the power of your Holy Spirit with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers, people we go to school with, with everyone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible, you would please turn with me to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read from the screen today. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus had a way of seeing through people and seeing through their motives. And he always cared more about people, more about an individual person than he did about rules and regulations and being superior, which is what the Pharisees always wanted to do. But here's the thing. Jesus was superior in every way. Yet he used his superiority to lift people up without lowering the standard of righteousness. Today we're going to deal with the elephant of sexuality. In fact, the message title is, What Does Jesus' Love Require Concerning Sexuality? Probably nothing causes more confusion, anger, and disagreement these days in our culture than this area of sexuality. Now, when I was a little boy, which isn't very long ago in the grand scope of human history... You know, we had two genders. There was male and female. Homosexual practice was around. I mean, it's been around since, you know, four or five generations after Adam and Eve. But it was considered abnormal. My friends all had a mom and a dad. We had the same mom and dad from the time we were born until we were adults. And the thing is, in just 50 years, from the time I was 10 or 11 until now... Everything's changed. 
We talk about, pretty much as normal, we talk about, you know, gender fluidity. We talk about um, gender neutralization. We talk about all these different things. Marriage is now just a social convenience between any two partners, and it lasts as, as long as it does. And when it doesn't, then we go find somebody else or we don't. And many churches in our culture are going along with the culture's ideas about sexuality. Now, my goal today is not to tell you what's right and wrong when it comes to sexuality. Jesus did that a couple thousand years ago. My goal is not to say, hey, we all ought to get in our little time machine and go back to the 1960s when I was a little kid. Because that's actually when all this stuff started that's been going on for the last 50 years. My goal is expressed in today's take-home point. And if, if you're watching online for the first time, you're here for the first time, the take-home point is the one point that I'll be making in my message from Scripture that we will hopefully take home and think about it, pray about it, and live it through in the week ahead. And so here it is. God's love requires that we value every person as a man or woman created in His image. Now, if you're under 30, I understand that statement sounds old-fashioned and sort of out of date. Where did, I, where did I get it? From Jesus. Let's go back to the interaction that we had between the religious leaders and the Pharisees, Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. Now, we don't know how many religious leaders and Pharisees there were. We don't know if it was five or 50. But we do know a couple of truths about those Pharisees and religious teachers. Number one, they didn't care about the woman at all. She was just a pawn in their game to trap Jesus. And they really didn't care what Jesus had to say about, you know, what Moses said about women caught in adultery, whether they should be stoned or not. What they wanted was for Jesus to show mercy to the woman so they could say she, that he was against the law of Moses or say that he should condemn the woman so that they could say that he didn't have any mercy. Either way, they thought that Jesus was trapped. Now, Jesus wasn't trapped. In fact, Jesus never got trapped by those guys. And what happened was Jesus stooped down and he starts writing in the dust. Now, what we don't know from the context of John 8, it's a Sabbath day. It's a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Now, on the Sabbath, you are not allowed to work. And the Pharisees had come up with a little rule, actually hundreds of little rules to, to say what work was. And what they said in those little rules was you could not write on the Sabbath, that was work. However, if you wrote in the dust, it wasn't work because the wind would blow the writing away, so it wasn't work. So what Jesus was doing when he bent down and wrote in the dust, he was saying, I know your little game. I can play it too. A lot of people wonder what Jesus wrote in the dust. It doesn't matter what he wrote in the dust. Did he write, you shall not commit adultery? Did he write the Pharisees' names? And then put the sins that they had committed after their names. It doesn't matter. He was simply saying, I am aware of your game. And, you know, more than one can play at your game. And as Jesus was writing in the dust, as Jesus was looking what's going on, Jesus might have been thinking about something that he was going to do. He was going to show them that the law of Moses, nobody can keep it. In fact, nobody could keep it already. But Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said this. He said, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman who with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So these religious leaders, they added interpretations and they added all this different stuff onto the law of Moses so that they could memorize it, that they could live it out, and so that everybody would look at them and say, Whoa, they are so good, we could never be as good as they are. But when Jesus said, 
If you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. What he was saying is it's beyond the capacity of any human being, any human being, to fulfill the law of Moses. We're all, we're all fallen. None of us are right. And so let's go back to Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees, as I said, they didn't care about this woman. They didn't care that they had humiliated. They brought her in front of this large crowd. They didn't care about that. They didn't care that Jesus might actually say, go ahead, take the stone and kill her. They didn't care if she died. They didn't care that she was actually a woman who had a husband and she was being unfaithful to him at the moment. She might have been a mom with children. They didn't care about any of, any of that. All they cared about was she was a pawn in their game to trap Jesus. And as far as they could see, it was checkmate. But Jesus stooped down and rode in the dirt. And the Pharisees might have been thinking, oh, we really have him. He doesn't even know what to say. He's, he's stalling for time. But what Jesus might have been doing was actually giving them a little bit of time to think through what they, are, they were doing. Maybe to get a little bit of conscience about what had been going on here and how they had, how they had you know, taken this woman. And yes, she was sinful. That's true. But, but what they did was so inappropriate. And so what the Pharisees didn't see coming was what actually was going on. You know, have you ever been in that situation where it's a little awkward because you've just said something and you know it's right, and the other person knows it's right, but they won't admit that it's right? That's where the Pharisees thought they had Jesus. But that's where Jesus had the Pharisees. And so let's look again. We already read it, but it says, they, that's the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. You know, the Pharisees never saw that coming. Instead of Jesus saying something about being merciful to the woman or following the law of Moses, he threw their accusation back on them. It's, it's really interesting. Jesus said, yeah, go ahead, kill her. I mean, the law of Moses said kill her, so go ahead and kill her. If you've never sinned yourself, that's, that's fine. So the woman, imagine being the woman in that situation. And she's cowering in fear. She doesn't know what's going on. And Jesus goes on the offensive, but not against her, against her accusers. And now she's probably wondering, how self-righteous are they? Are they actually going to kill me right now? The New Living Translation records um, the response of the Pharisees this way. It says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So do you see what the NLT calls the Pharisees? They weren't called Pharisees. They were called accusers. The devil has a name. We've all probably heard it. Satan. The word Satan means accuser or adversary. And so the Pharisees were being the devil towards this woman. They had brought her in front of Jesus and they were saying, look, Jesus, she's a sinner. And so what did Jesus do? He did what Jesus always does to the devil. He puts him in his place. He stops the accusation. He says, okay, if you have never sinned, then you go ahead and you throw the first stone. And it's interesting. What order did they leave? We're told that they left, uh, walked away from the oldest to the youngest. Now, why would the oldest walk away first and then the youngest? Well, I know something about being older. <laughs> I know why the older ones walked away first, because they knew they were sinners. They knew they weren't perfect. You see, the older you get, the more you realize, you know, you don't have all the spots on your dominoes. You're not perfect. 
And so they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. When we're young, we're zealous, we're passionate, we think we're right about everything. But when we get older, now it's not always that way. I mean, we've all known that 60-year-old who isn't really 60 years old. They've been two years old 58 times, right? Or, or, or they've been six-year-old 54 times, or they've been 14 years old, you know, 46 times. We know those 60-year-olds who have been caught in their terrible twos, or they've been caught in their childhood, or they've been caught as teenagers. But generally speaking, as we get older, we understand that we're not perfect. And, and look at the Pharisees. You know, these Pharisees, they had actually invested their entire adult life seeking to follow the will of God and the way of God. And, and what we understand is they got it. They understood what Jesus was saying. No human being is without sin. So they walked away. And they left just two people. Now, yeah, there was a big crowd. John tells us there was a big crowd. But it was like there was just the woman and Jesus. That's all, that were, that's all who were left. And, and so it says, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, look at that interaction. We see where the NLT got the word accuser. In the original Greek, that word accuser, it can mean accuser or judge. Well, it can also mean the person who thinks they're right because of their superior righteousness. And what Jesus said to the woman is, where, where are those people? And what we, what we miss in the NLT, there's a little nuance in the Greek that we don't see. Because here's how it actually reads in the Greek. It says this, woman, where are they? Woman. Where are they? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And so what Jesus is doing is something the Pharisees hadn't done. He sees her as a person, as a woman, created in the image and likeness of God. And he says to her, get something. Make sure you understand this. All those righteous people, <laughs> they're just like you. Not one of them really gets to be your judge. Now, I don't know if the woman understood that Jesus could have been her judge. He was perfect. He did have the right to throw the stone. But she said, no one, Lord. And, and then Jesus responds with one of his most famous statements. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I purposely said one of Jesus' you know, most famous statements because it wasn't actually just one statement. It was two. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But he also said, go and sin no more. It's two statements. I don't condemn you and go and stop sinning. Notice I said and. He didn't say either I don't condemn you or go and stop sinning. He said neither do I condemn you and stop and go, go and stop sinning. Now, there are, is a group of people, big group of people in our culture. And what they say is, don't you see what Jesus said? He said, neither do I condemn you. That means Jesus doesn't condemn anybody because he's so loving. And here's the truth. Jesus is so loving. In fact, he's so loving that there's a woman caught in adultery and he doesn't condemn her. He shows love to her. And that group of people generally says something like this. You know, Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery, so he doesn't condemn me when I do blank. And when it comes to human sexuality, the blank can be filled in with all kinds of things, but it's something that isn't celibacy, which means not having any kind of sexual activity if you're not married or monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it usually means. We're going to do something, and Jesus is going to be good with it because Jesus is so loving. Now, as soon as we hear that, the other group, which is becoming a smaller group, that group says, wait a minute, 
Don't you know what Jesus said? He said, go and stop sinning. So in other words, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, Jesus isn't going to really love you. That isn't what Jesus said. He didn't say either of those things. Jesus said this, I don't condemn what you do. I don't condemn you for what you do. I mean, he might condemn what you do. He says, and if it devalues you as one of my children, stop doing it. Now, when we read the accounts of Jesus' life from the Gospels, I do something that I've done since I was a teenager because my, my mentor, Andy Wygant, taught me this. I put myself in the situation. I, I, I see myself in the crowd, or I see myself as the woman, or I see myself as one of the Pharisees. And you might think, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't really do that. But after four decades of doing that, I can tell you something that's real and true, and it's this. You and I are part of the biblical accounts. We are. When we read that account this morning, you probably pictured yourself as watching from the crowd. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Or maybe you identified with that woman and you thought, whoa, I've done so many bad things in my life. Or maybe you felt like one of those Pharisees and you were ready to throw the stone because you, you know that you do good and righteous things in your life. And I don't understand why people don't do the things that they should do. But the reality is this. Uh, we're Christians. At least most of us in the room or watching online probably are. Shouldn't we see Jesus and start to say, after all these years of following Jesus, I'm starting to act a little more like him? You know, I mean, I'm starting to be more like Jesus. We live in a culture where we tend to be Pharisaic about whatever we believe concerning sexuality. Let me say that again. We live in a culture where we tend to be pharisaic about whatever we believe about sexuality. If you're under 30, you probably think that homosexual practice, bisexuality, hooking up, all of those things are just normal. And people who don't agree with that are just, you know, out of touch, old-fashioned, or maybe even dangerous. If you're my age or older, you're probably wondering, what in the world happened in our lifetime? How did things get so messed up from a standpoint of sexuality? And if you're in between 30 and 60, you're probably... Leaning one way or the other, depending on your education, your experience, and your beliefs. But the conclusions we draw, regardless of which group we're in, the conclusions are the same. We are right, and everybody else is wrong. I think we owe the Pharisees in today's story an apology. Here's why. When Jesus said to them, let the one without sin cast the first stone, what did they do? They said, you know, Jesus... You're right. You know, Jesus, we don't have a right to be the judge. And they walked away. They recognized that no human being, no human being has the right to determine who is right or wrong because we're all wrong at some level. We're flawed. We're sinners. When it comes to human sexuality in our day, what people say is, I'm going to choose what I'm going to do. And if it feels good, I'm going to do it. And what right do you have to tell me how I can live my life? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. What right do you have to tell me how to live? What right do I have to tell you how to live? So what do we do? How do we decide? How do, how do, we, you know, how do we make decisions about this kind of thing? Well, here in America, we know what we do. We vote. We get to vote on what's right and wrong. And the thing is, it's never worked very well when it comes to matters of morality. But in our lives, if we go outside of ourselves, if we at least want to have some authority other than ourselves, we only have four choices. We can go to politics and government. We can go to philosophy. We can go to science and reason. Or we can go to faith and religion. And when we go to politics and government to decide matters of sexuality, 
what we say is that the majority or the dictator gets to say what's legal. But here's the thing. What's legal isn't always right. And what's right is not always legal. But what about philosophy? Now, if you don't know what philosophy is, it comes from two Greek words. Philos, which means love, and Sophia, which means wisdom. So philosophy is loving wisdom. What kind of wisdom? My wisdom. My philosophy is my philosophy. So what it really means is I'm going to be a Pharisee and I'm going to tell you you should believe what I believe because my wisdom that I love is better than the wisdom that you love. What about science and reason? Now that seems like it ought to be the one that works, right? Because what's science supposed to do? It's supposed to be impartial, supposed to be fair, supposed to look at the facts and make decisions. But here's the thing. When it comes to matters of sexuality, we just don't have much reason. Think about it. If you believe in all of the stuff that science teaches these days, then if you put two males together or two females together, how is that going to work out for the procreation of the species? Not so good. So that leaves religion and faith. And there are a lot of people in our world today that say religion and faith, it's just human effort to control people, to make people think a certain way. One thing is sure, there are a lot of human religions out there. And in those religions, what happens is people are seeking to follow what the God or gods they serve tells them to do and not to do. But the God that we serve is so different. First of all, he is the one true God. Now, I know that's a faith statement, and I believe that, and some of you believe that. But what makes our God so different is Jesus. Jesus came to the earth, God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect life. But you know what? Jesus didn't live a perfect life so he could pick up stones and throw them at us. Because he's perfect and we're not. Jesus lived a perfect life so he could take the stones out of our hands and say, it doesn't matter what you've done so far. I'm going to die so that whatever you've done so far can be erased. I'm going to die so that the sin that causes a penalty of death on your head is going to be taken away. Now, who does that? What kind of person does what's best for everybody else and doesn't care about what's best for himself? Only Jesus. In all of history, Jesus is the only one who has ever done that. Now, Jesus died to silence our accuser, Satan. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he taught with an authority like nobody else had ever had. Jesus was not all in for love or all in for truth. He was all in for truth and love. We talk about that a lot here at New Life. You know, truth and love. And hopefully, after 18 years of talking about it, and living it in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're getting to be a little better at it than we used to be, that maybe we're even getting to be a little more like Jesus when it comes to truth and love. Now, many people in our culture today say, well, you know, Jesus never really addressed homosexuality or bisexuality or transgenderism or any of those kind of things. As a point of fact, he did. One day, the religious leaders came to Jesus to trap him. And every time I read that, I go, are you guys kidding me? You know, like every time you try to trap him, you end up with egg all over your face. You, you never, ever trap Jesus, so why don't you give up? But this day they came with a question. It was an important question in their day. It's an important question in our day. They, they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? Is it okay for a man to get divorced if he wants to? Now, Jesus, always ready to play the game, says, what do you think? What's the law of Moses say? Now, they couldn't resist that chance to show how smart they were. They said, well, the law of Moses said it's okay. And they put a period at the end of that sentence, but that's not what 
It really says. I mean, it, it, there's not a period at the end of the sentence. There's a comma. Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So Jesus acknowledged, yes, the law of Moses, which was written after sin entered the world, to reduce sin in the world, did permit you to get a divorce. But that's not God's original plan. Here's God's original plan. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and 2 are the only chapters in the Bible when the world is perfect. Until you get to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, which is after Jesus comes back and everything's perfect again. But all the chapters in between, it's not perfect. And so the law of Moses was written to limit our imperfection and to guide us and, and protect us until Jesus came. So what Jesus says is, in the beginning, God created a man and a woman. He created human beings, male and female. You start out as a little boy or as a little girl. That's the way God created it. Now, we can say, I don't like that. I don't like that plan. We can become Pharisees, and we can say, I'm going to change that plan to something else. Jesus went on and continued by saying in Genesis 2.24, it says this. That's the reason why a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus says that in the very fabric of creation, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the way it is in the good, perfect world that God created. Now, again, we can say that's not the way it is. But when we do that, we become Pharisees. And you might be sitting there watching online. You might be thinking, wait a minute, Chris. I'm not a Pharisee. Pharisees are self-righteous. Is there anything more self-righteous than for a human being to say that we are right or wrong about anything, much less about the vital matter of human sexuality. Only when Jesus, and we let Jesus order of our lives through his truth and love, will we be ever set free. You see, Jesus didn't come to give us rules. Jesus came to set us free. The woman caught in adultery, the rules were going to kill her, literally. Jesus said, you know, it's not going to happen today. Not unless you all think you're perfect. You see, Jesus gave this woman a new lease on life. Literally, she was free. She could go back home to her husband. She could fix things up. She could start over again. She could go and stop sinning. That's what Jesus told her. But we don't know if she did. We don't know what happened to the woman. We don't know if she ever did the right thing or if she just was so relieved that she wasn't killed that day that she went out and did whatever she wanted. But here's what we know. Some of us are living with a rigid set of rules. And we want everybody to live according to that rigid set of rules. And we think if they don't, they're sinners. And some of us are living with no rules. And we think that nobody has a right to tell us what to do. Those are the two extremes, and there's all kinds of people in between, right? But the reality is, God who created us, who designed us, God already gave us the order and structure for our lives. And we see it in today's next step, what we're supposed to do about that. I will live in God's love, showing respect and honor for every man and woman. God's love is received in and through Jesus Christ. And when we receive him as Savior and Lord in our lives, we receive a new life. And 
His Spirit to live inside of us so that we can live in a way we've never lived before. And it doesn't matter how you've lived up to this point. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you haven't done. It doesn't matter how your sexuality has been expressed up until this point. Whatever it's been, Jesus has a better way. Jesus has the perfect way. Now, if you're sitting here watching online and Jesus Christ is not Savior and Lord in your life, then how can I or anyone expect you to order your life according to his way? I can guarantee you it'll be better for you. I can guarantee you it's better for me. But until Jesus is Lord, which means he is the owner of our life, he gets to tell us his way is the way. An interesting thing is, even though his way is the way, he he never condemned people who weren't going his way. And then the thing is, Savior. It means he saves us from ourselves, from whatever sin it is. I mean, we've been talking about these, you know, elephants, sexuality, suicide, racism, all these things, abortion. But, But all of those things are just a symptom of a heart that's broken. That doesn't work the way God designed it to work. And only when Jesus is Savior and Lord in our lives does that heart get restored. And it, it doesn't happen instantly. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I might have left you with the impression that I'm 60 years old. Well, I'm 61, actually. That I'm 61 years old. I, I don't know how many times I might have lived a couple of those years. So my, I might only be like 48. I don't know. But what I, what I do know is, however old you are today, wherever you are in your life, wherever you're doing with your sexuality, God has a design and a plan that's perfect. And that design that's perfect, when lived out, produces the kind of world that God created before we brought sin into it. So my prayer, in fact, I'm going to pray in a moment, but my prayer during my prayer is that if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you'll pray. And that you'll say, Jesus, come in and take over because I haven't done a good job of it. Or if you already have trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but you're still not doing a good job of it, that you'll say, Jesus, I'm releasing myself to you again. I need you. I need your spirit in my life. I need to have that new life that I I, I say I have, but I need more of it. And as we pray, this could be the moment that was just like that moment for the woman. I don't condemn you. So go and live a new life. Stop doing whatever it is, whatever sin it is that's destroying your life right now. Give it up and come follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and love. We thank you so much for Jesus. What an amazing, amazing example of truth and love. God, today I pray for each of us. I pray for any in the room watching online that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. God, I pray that right now they will just let go and say, come in. Come in and take over my life. Let me be the new person you created me to be. And for those of us, God, who have trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that we will also let you come in new and fresh. Pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us, God, that we can follow you faithfully, that we can be empowered to do the things that no human being can do. Be holy and righteous and good in your power and in your name. We do pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.